0: Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Alisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello! And today, the title of our episode is Building Blocks to a Civil War. In this episode, we're specifically going to be going over the American Civil War.
1: And the thing about the Civil War and its history is, I feel like it's almost become niche over the years. Like, I remember when I was younger thinking, eh, it's kind of for like a certain type of people, and it's just not me. And honestly, in some ways, it really does breed just that. It has almost like a cult devotion to it. From both sides, too. The state's rights, rugged and strong defender of the South, who is graceful in his loss due to being outnumbered, in the liberty-seeking equality-bringing Northerner, who emerges victorious and unites the nation, in the woe-is-me mentality that is not only adopted by the South, but granted to them by the North, as the entire country tries is to heal together, so the North leaves some room for that sense of loss. The loss of lifestyle, of pride, and the very foundations of their culture that had been stripped from them by aimless Northern aggression. So it's easy to be turned off by the subject. But I had the opportunity of having a couple insanely well-versed and enlightened professors who helped me understand what really happened in the Civil War and how very far from the truth we are when we tend to remember it as a country in ways that really shocked me honestly. I learned more than just the boring dates and the dramatic plight of the confederates that had disinterested me years ago and what i saw was a deeply and profoundly interesting story that took place and i feel it still deeply affects us today in ways that we've tried to forget but it's important that we don't because what is more profound than the war and the events itself is how we as a nation and culture revisit our memories on the subject and the narrative though it changes over the years speaks volumes of how much work we still have to do
0: and neither side is going to tell the this story quite right. There's too much pain to go around because it was such a bloody and anger-filled war. Both sides felt justified. Both sides felt empowered. As it's so personal for everyone involved, parts are left out of the narrative that are crucial to the overall picture that are glossed over constantly. And there's so much hypocrisy that's ignored.
1: For real, yeah. So in this podcast, we're actually gonna try to solidify what it was really fought over by pointing out some of the major events or trigger events as some people refer to them. We by no means can cover every single trigger event, just the major ones that really stick out. I think that we have all heard the argument that Southern sympathizers tend to gravitate to, which makes this a question in the first place. They'll say it was fought over state's rights. And you know, there's actually some truth to that because here's what it was. It was fought over state's rights to. own slaves. There's no way around it. Anyone who really knows anything about the existing tension surrounding the subject can't deny that by far and large the reason it was fought was over slavery, period. And that's not to say that there weren't some southern soldiers who didn't hold other morals as they marched into war. Of course it's never that simple. You see, before the Civil War, no one typically referred to themselves as Americans. They would much more closely identify with their specific home states. They would say, I'm Virginian or I'm Pennsylvania, and so on. So lots of individual soldiers, particularly from the southern states, may truly have very little personal stake in the matter of slavery. The poor population didn't even really own slaves. So sure, fine. There's room to say that not every single soldier was fighting to maintain slavery, but here's the thing. The southern states only left the Union because they wanted to keep owning slaves, and they went to war for that right. So the soldiers may have been fighting for their states, but their state was fighting for slavery, so they in tandem were fighting for slavery. And don't worry, we'll get into the average mindset of the northern soldier later on, probably in the next podcast. And as you may have guessed, most of them were far from idealistic abolitionists seeking to end the mistreatment of black people. But let's go ahead and talk about why we know it was undoubtedly fought over slavery. Literally, this issue dates back to before the founding of the nation, so much so that the constitution had to address it. We mentioned this in previous podcasts. The constitution left the topic of slavery up to states to decide. It did so because they needed to find a way to ease the growing unrest regarding slavery. Most northerners hated it. It was affronted the desire of equal Equal opportunity, and mind you, it was not equal opportunity for black people who were in shackles, not in the slightest. They were okay with denying their rights completely, with little qualms from anyone. Because you see, at this time, the country was still struggling to answer the question of how human slaves were. That's the time they came up with the three-fifths compromise, but we'll get into that, believe it or not, in relation to something later on. The North was only interested in protecting white people's opportunity. Not to mention, the United States and the North in particular were big fans of Britain, and they wanted to emulate a lot from them. It was becoming the latest fashion to be against slavery, so the North was just worried about keeping up with the times, not the liberation of their fellow man. And as for the South, it just couldn't compete with the North on industrial level. Their main mode of economy is going to be agriculture, namely plantations, at least for the elites. So they couldn't risk losing that. But yes, slavery was a hot button topic even back then. Let's go ahead and jump back into the pre-Civil War era to talk about the first trigger event that we're going to be going over. Lots of historians point to the Missouri Compromise as the first apparent thing to remind everyone how present this anger between them is. To sum up what this issue really was here, after the growth that results from the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, by 1820 Missouri is going to be ready to file for statehood, and they're going to try to file as a slave state.
0: And this is going to stir up a terrible upset with the northern states. Previously, pro-slave and anti-slave representatives had been divided up equally for the most part, and it was fair, or more pointedly, it was as fair as it could be given how deep the disagreement went. They had tried for years to have room to agree to disagree on slavery. There was no form of compromise outside of this. They either wanted to maintain slavery or they didn't, and there was very few people in between because they were a front to one another. But now, upon the arrival of a new state, this is going to effectively tip the scales and votes in favor of slavery if Missouri is inducted as a slave state. And that's not to say that there weren't absolutely people trying to compromise.
1: There was one man in particular who's given much credit for just that, and that's going to be Henry Clay of Virginia. Now, Clay is able to relate to both sides. Not only does he come from a slave state and own slaves himself, but he also condemns the practices as a whole. Not unlike Jefferson, who owned slaves and yet condemned its evilness, though I'm not sure how much Clay cared about its evilness and more so its impracticality to white men, but what a strange thing to do. Not really a healthy dual like so many people will paint it. To me, it just strikes more of utter confusion and hypocrisy of your own moral compass. But anyways, he sees and understands full well that if peace or a form of peace is not found on the subject of slavery and the states couldn't come together on this, it would lead to total disaster and a division. He is going to come up with the Missouri Compromise. Now, this compromise was needed because the country had not really found a way of introducing new states into their very fragile Union. Or how to determine whether the state would be free or slave. And you might be thinking, especially given the rather imperialistic tendencies of the U.S., that is very short-sighted of them, as they were sure to acquire new lands and therefore states. So why wouldn't they have a game plan? And you're completely right. It's very short-sighted. But it's because every time slavery was even brought up, they would just break out into fights with each other and fail to reach a verdict. And I mean some seriously bad fights. Like, they would on occasion turn violent. And I'm talking old southern man beating a northern man with his cane on the floor of the U.S. Senate violent. And yes, that did happen. And yes, it was a fight centered around slavery, but I won't get sidetracked on that. If you want to know more, you can probably easily Google it. It was Senator Brooks in 1856, if you want to look it up. But anyway, let's talk about what the compromise ended up doing. Missouri will be inducted as a slave state. But as a result, they will also create Maine as a completely new state, keeping the number of pro-slavery representatives the same as the anti-slavery ones.
0: It's also going to draw a line in attempt to primitively solve the issue of the addition of eventual states, too. This line is going to be in the middle of the country, and in essence, it meant anything over the line was free land and anything under it is slave land and neither side is going to be particularly thrilled with this deal but it is going to be passed in the sake of compromise and the matter is going to be solved for the time being And we, of course, know that it didn't truly solve anything. It merely acted as a band-aid to an injury that needed full reconstructive surgery.
1: And that's just how they always compromised about slavery. They desperately tried to keep it on the back burner because they knew how explosive it was. But anyway, the next big thing that's gonna happen is Nat Turner's rebellion in 1837, which trust me, there's a lot of misinformation surrounding this particular event. But to touch on it briefly, It was one of many slave rebellions in the south. It's gonna be the bloodiest, which is why it's so important. In the first few days of this rebellion, Turner and his group are going to successfully kill and flee from about 60 of their slave owners. Now, here's what makes it so bloody. It's not just the uprising itself, but more so the response to it. The Virginia government sent in militia, infantry, and artillery, and eventually executed Turner himself as well as 55 other cohorts. And mind you, That's not even the most violent part of this. After the entire event is over, close to 200 black people, and trigger warning here, had been lynched by mobs that formed due to this rebellion. And just so you know, there were only ever about 70 people who were with Turner that were known. And even then, the numbers of this event are still unclear. So if the military killed 55 people, then why were over 200 more black people killed on the streets? It's clearly done out of pure fear by the white population. And on that same vein of fear, after this rebellion, Virginia is going to pass laws that severely oppress black people. Keep in mind, they already pretty much had no rights, yet they still found ways to worsen their position by limiting them from education as well as taking away their ability to assemble and freely discuss opinions. Just straight-up dictatorship. Assemblies and meetings were how they spread the word to organize such rebellions in the first place. It's so intriguing to see how much cohesiveness and cooperation within the Black community could be accomplished as they were given close to no rights, yet they were still able to use the little room that they had been given to strategize together. But another thing that this rebellion is going to do is heighten slave owners' fear of their slaves. They are getting stricter as a reaction to them recognizing what a terrible spot they're in. And that's interesting watching their paranoia increase because that's what happens with corruption and abuse of power. Fear and paranoia always spike. And they are deeply and truly fearful of what they viewed as the wrath of those who they had kept in
0: bondage and oppressed for so long now that we've touched on nat turner's rebellion this is a good time to say something i know as an audience member who has been listening to this podcast you might notice how we haven't talked about black history yet but rather white people and their history of their treatment of black people and that's very true but unfortunately that's what much of racial ideology is about at least in the american scope it is a vital part of history but it's also still very much centered around the white man And we promise there will be episodes where we will shed light on black history and properly celebrate its richness. More importantly, we will seek to tell black history in a way that isn't through the lens of white history. Even now, as we only briefly touch on Nat Turner's rebellion and go right back to speaking on other issues that white people had with it, just know that it is only for the sake of staying on topic. Much of this country's history is centered around the white man's story. But through the years, while white men ruled, black people were very much alive and so was their history. We will have a future podcast devoted solely to Nat Turner's rebellion and rebellions in the South in general, because they have a story to be told too, and we will tell it.
1: Very, very true. And with that said, I guess I'll go ahead and bring it back to the topic at hand right now, which is going to be the next big event. And you'll never guess what they're going to do. They're going to again try another feudal compromise known as the Compromise of 1850. And this is going to be led by, get ready for it, Henry Clay. This time, he will also be working with Senator Stephen Douglas, who is another person that valued the ideals of both sides. Now, the Compromise of 1850 is actually kind of a couple different compromises joined together. It comes up because of the new land acquired from the Mexican-American War. During the war, there had already been a ton of heated debate about whether the territory Tories would be free or slave, a particularly big state that had been up for debate was California. It's going to want to join the Union as a free state, which is obviously not going to be a popular decision among the Southern representatives. The compromise itself is even less liked all around than the previous one that had been reached in 1820. But again, it passes, and it's going to allow for California to be admitted as a free state. But it also addresses an issue that the South had been having for quite some time. You see, slaves that ran away from their Southern masters had been escaped to the north, and once they were on free land, the north many times would do nothing to return them to the south. And see, this is where you're gonna hear Southerners preach about the importance of private property. I know we have mentioned this before, but Southerners really only saw private property as one of the most essential rights because of their slaves. They wanted their slaves returned to them and they wanted it guaranteed by the federal government, regardless of the laws of the states that they were retrieved from. And I think this is so interesting because it goes to show that the only state's rights they were heavily invested in was when it pertained to their ability to maintain the slave force. They're all for government intervention to help them keep their slaves, even if it impedes on other states' rights. In fact, that is what they got from the Compromise of 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act, which made it illegal for Northerners to not return missing slaves. And while the South is going to like the Fugitive Slave Act, the North is going to be super angry about it, because not only has the issue of slavery not been solved, but now they have to participate in it in a way that they had previously avoided too because now it made them feel like their free land was very much not free if somehow the slave owner's rights to their slaves outweighed the rights of the free land state. Another big thing that's going to happen, which is definitely more of a cultural shift than anything else, is the publishing of Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, in 1852, which is a pro-abolitionist piece. Now, a little reminder or explanation for anyone who hasn't listened to previous episodes, there is a huge difference between people who are anti-slavery and people who are abolitionists. Abolitionists don't just hate slavery, they're advocating for the government to recognize black people as equal human beings and be treated as such by the law. They're going to be, by far and large, extremely religious evangelical Christians, and they're very passionate about this movement. While they were serious advocates, they're going to be the minority group, even in the North most northerners were anti-slavery which is very different they are not going to be worried about giving black people rights in fact most of them are against slavery because it brings more black people into the country and they didn't want any more black people in the country because they felt like it would put a strain on white capitalism but we won't dwell on that too much as it was something we already covered and we will probably make an in-depth podcast about it in the future it's just important that you know the difference at least on a surface level because it reveals how very impactful uncle
0: Tom's cabin is going to be. This book is going to be the first nationally recognized and widely received abolitionist work because it sheds light on slaves in a way most people had never seen them before. It illustrated them as humans capable of deep emotions with complex lives and backstories that effectively forced readers to connect with them on a personal level. As incredibly far-fetched as it might sound today, Black people had never been depicted in such a manner before, at least not in a way that had such an impact culturally. And for those who had been apathetic to the struggles and mistreatment of Black people, now they were made to reconsider their stance. So... This really puts abolitionists and their cause on the map in a profound way. It's still not going to be the main feeling of the North as a whole, but it leaves room for the abolitionist cause. And keep in mind, this
1: book is incredibly racist even still, playing into Black stereotypes and even encapsulating the incredibly problematic Happy Slave, which is super gross. It may have portrayed slaves as humans, but honestly, that's seriously still bare minimum really. So it by no means passes today's vibe check, but it doesn't change the deep impact that it's gonna have on society. But anyway, another event that's going to have a huge significance leading up to the war is Bleeding Kansas, which takes place from 1854 to 1859. Now this is absolutely crazy intense. Bleeding Kansas is going to essentially be set in motion by the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. And a familiar character is gonna be behind this act, Senator Stephen Douglas. Basically, the act is going to effectively repeal the line that had been established by the Missouri Compromise years ago, which with the brink of Kansas statehood nearby, it makes it up to the settlers of the land to decide whether or not the state is gonna be free or slave. And this dude really misjudges how bad the act is gonna upset the North, cause now literally all incoming states had a chance to be slave even the ones that were considered northern which was encroaching on their turf so both anti-slavery and abolitionists as well as pro-slavery people are going to flood kansas before it's officially inducted as a state to swing the amount of voters for their cause and keep in mind the people who are coming by far and large are those who hold extreme beliefs about this. Like, they care so much about the subject, regardless of what side they're on. They were willing to uproot their entire life and settle on this undeveloped land just to up the chances of their cause. So many of these people aren't going to casually disagree with one another. They're going to straight up be enemies. And this leads to complete chaos. There would be on occasion violent fights that broke out. And in some areas of the territory, guerrilla warfare. Was taking place. There was a tentative call for peace reached in 1859 that calms the waters, kind of, which is seen as the end of that particular event pretty much. And Bleeding Kansas in its entirety has many layers to it, but we won't go into it in too much detail. It's just very notable because it shows how far people are willing to go for their cause on both sides even before the war.
0: Another really polarizing event that took place is Dred Scott versus Stanford, which happened in 1857. In this case, Scott is going to try and sue for his freedom, and this case becomes so complicated it's going to rise all the way to the Supreme Court, and unfortunately, he's going to be denied. What's worse is the reason why this verdict is reached. They denied Scott because he had no rights as a citizen and therefore had no right to sue in the first place. The judge who carried out this verdict was Chief Justice Roger Taney, who is quoted as saying that black people were so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, which is irrevocably devastating as it effectively reduces not just Dred Scott, but all slaves as nothing more than property in the eyes of the highest court in the United States.
1: Furthermore, this decision is also going to make it even more challenging to accurately define how much the federal government is allowed to intervene and regulate the institution of slavery as a whole. So, moving forward, another intense event that's going to take place is known as John Brown's Raid in 1859. This guy is super interesting. Definitely a future podcast in store for him, so we will save some of that for later. But to sum him up briefly, he's going to be an extreme abolitionist more radical even than most other abolitionists. While others are accepting of black people being equal to only a rather minor degree, he is one of the few who unapologetically believes black people are in absolutely no way lesser than white people. He's so deeply devoted to liberating his fellow humans from bondage that he will recommend to gain that freedom no matter what it takes. Particularly, he believes in using violence against slave owners, and pro-slavery individuals when necessary. He was actually one of the notable people who took part in Bleeding Kansas, and he's gonna lead a raid to overthrow an armory in Virginia in October of 1859. Now, this raid is gonna be shut down by the military, and this particular group, by the way, is led by a one, Robert E. Lee, who will become a very important figure for the Confederates during the Civil War. And once the raid is shut down, Brown is going to be executed for treason. But one of the reasons why this is a big deal is because Because of how his death is seen amongst differing sides, parts of the North are actually going to celebrate him as a martyr, praise him, and remember him as a hero.
0: This response is going to deeply offend the South. They had tried him as a traitor, a terrorist who had taken part in slaughtering many fine Southern gentlemen. Furthermore, Brown directly represented everything the South had going against it. Remember. The moral justification of slavery is very fragile, and they're going to compensate for this by trying to pass abolitionists like John Brown as radical troublemakers or terrorists. And so, when groups of people celebrate him, they feel their way of life is going to directly be put in jeopardy.
1: And never forget, when they say way of life, that is code for the institution of slavery and more specifically, white supremacy. They will say it's their culture and means of income that was under attack. And yes, that's true. But their custom was racism and their means of income was slavery. So yeah. Anyway, let's discuss what's going to be the final straw for the South. That is the election of Abraham Lincoln in November of 1860. Now, Lincoln has been stirring up some trouble for quite some time in the political sphere. He's young, wide-eyed, a fresh face in the political scene, and appeals to many Northerners because of his radical stances on slavery. And there's no sugarcoating it here, he is in no way a fighter for black rights. In fact, he's very much the opposite. He believes that slavery is doomed to fail, as well as it being a death sentence for lower-class white people who want to make it in capitalism. And more particularly, he doesn't like the growing black population in slave states. He in no way felt that black people should live among white people as equals, at least not in the beginning of his career. There is evidence later on in the war that suggests he becomes more in lined with the abolitionist mindset, but it's hard to tell how much of that was due to him becoming enlightened versus how much of that was due to political gain once he realized what an asset having the black population would be for his cause. But he is the ultimate symbol of everything the South does not want in politics. When he wins, the election in November, they see this as a slap in the face and a complete betrayal of the North. It was effectively in their eyes, the end of their voices being represented in their government. And so the following month, North Carolina is going to be the first state to officially secede from the union. And one last thing to really just drive home how much hypocrisy there is on both sides. Keep this in mind secession before this point had always been a lingering threat, as it was a way for states to show they felt unrepresented. Actually, the North is going to be the ones to first seriously threaten secession years before this point, which comes as a surprise to most people. See, New England had been so angry that the U.S. had joined the War of 1812, they had called for secession in response to it. So secession was basically a way to show explicitly that each State and the Union had the right to leave once they felt that the Union no longer had their best interests in mind. And for the most part, it had proven to be effective. But this is a long-standing issue in politics. We see people invoking particular notions such as states' rights, but only in matters that involved whatever they were interested in. For example, remember how I mentioned that the Three-Fifths Compromise would come back up again? Yeah, that was a deal that had to be made because during the founding of this country, it was the North who hated the idea of slaves being counted as humans. And it was the South that argued that they should be counted as humans because they wanted their prospective population to be higher in order to get more electoral votes. Nobody cared about the worth and dignity of black people. They cared about how it would affect their political standings. The North didn't care and the South didn't care. They wanted as much power as they could possibly acquire from the current standing situation. So the South only called for black people to be human Humans when it gave them more population, and the North only did so collectively at the end of the Civil War when they needed black people to win. Never about liberation and never about human rights, always about power. And that
0: is where we are going to end this week's episode. I think we've really
1: set the scene, if you will.
0: (laughs) Yes. To the Civil War.
1: Yeah, so we're gonna go ahead and take a break. We need it. (laughs) Get some tea and we will be back with you shortly. All right. We're back. <laughs> <laughs> um, So what kind of tea are you having today, Elisa?
0: I'm having bancha hujicha.
1: Fun fact, bancha hujicha is actually the stems of Japanese green tea, and it's roasted. That's what bancha means. And I'm actually having kukicha, which is the non-roasted part of it. Now, a little bit of the kukicha is mixed in with some actual tea leaves, but some of it is stems. So yeah, neither of them are very high in caffeine, but both of them are delicious. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Lisa, <laughs> um,
0: who's, who's your artist? this week oh my goodness i wasn't expecting you to ask me that i know i'm sorry you put me on the spot (laughs) my artist is annie green and she is an independent singer-songwriter from calgary canada she posts a lot about a multitude of different issues on her twitter and instagram and one thing that's really cool that she does is she actually streams her music on twitch and the song that I'm going to recommend from her is called Butterflies. I really enjoy it.
1: Hey, Rin. Yeah? <laughs> Who's your artist for the week? Well, my artist <laughs> for this week is Temi Oni. I am obsessed with her whole vibe. Listen, she released her latest EP, and it's called Layers, this year actually. I am really, really like the song Beautiful on it. It's about each woman feeling comfortable in expressing themselves and saying that they're beautiful and believing they're beautiful. It's super empowering and it's also very much a safe space because she's not just talking about her own beauty and she's not just talking about specific Standards of beauty. She's talking about beauty within every single woman, which is amazing. She also has on her Spotify a playlist called BGM. For Black Girl Magic, she also has a song called that. And the whole playlist is fire. Give it a listen. It's amazing. Elisa, what's going on in the news lately?
0: For news this week, we wanted to shine a light on the unmarked federal agents that have been arresting protesters in Portland. They aren't local police or state officials and they have been particularly closed off about which agency they're with. They're essentially a secret police that the federal government has dispatched. And even more concerning, they're not planning to cease the deployment of these agents and instead are going to expand their presence. And so we need to be aware that they're out there and keep track of what they're doing. Another reason this is concerning is because secret police are one of the favorite tactics of many fascist and authoritarian governments.
1: Pay attention, you know, like, that's serious. This is not something that should be happening in a country that claims to be free.
0: We also wanted to make note that thousands more children have gone missing in ICE custody, which is highly unacceptable. Regardless of where these children are, it's unacceptable that they're not properly keeping track of these children in their care. This lack of accountability leaves openings for any number of atrocities to be happening to these children, and we can't allow them to to not take responsibility for these minors when they've separated them from their families and left them without proper guardianship
1: yes my gosh but um i'm gonna go ahead and cover the activist for the week our activist for this week is zyana bryant and i'm so sorry just a little side note we weren't able to find an accurate pronunciation for that so that's our best attempt at making sure that we pronounce it correctly please feel free to correct us if it is wrong because we'd love to make sure that we're saying the name correctly especially because her name is one that you should know she is an amazing girl she has done so much in her young age than most people have done in their adult life two years ago she was only 15 and she actually wrote to her local government and petitioned for a robert e lee statue to be taken down in the town of charlottesville virginia and listen i know it's pretty opportune that we're talking about this now because we just did a whole podcast about the civil war but if you want to talk about civil war culture virginia is flush with it. Civil War history has a strong presence in Virginia still today, so I can't even imagine all the struggles she went through to achieve such an amazing goal. The backlash was probably incredibly intense. And just this May, she also wrote a piece called An Anti-Racist Action Guide. And that's super awesome. We will be linking that midweek. So you should give that a read. But it's so great to see young voices being so loud and powerful. I really love it. I, I just, it's amazing to see young people care so much. Yeah. And that's where we're going to end this week's podcast. And remember, please check out our social media pages. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you appreciate our content, we do have a Ko-Fi account linked to pretty much all of those websites. So feel free to donate. We certainly won't stop you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and next week we're going to be talking about the Civil War itself. So look forward to that. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So let's set the record straight for what actually happened.
1: Yes, all right, bye.